happy February the 7th Super Bowl Sunday and welcome back inside scoopers to another action-packed episode today thank you for the happy birthdays look at all Jamie Belinda Suzanne in the room it's a good day I got to go out for a walk and walk Shuby the birds we had finches I had finches I had finches. It's, it's been forever since the finches come out. So I feel terrific. I feel great. I feel awesome that I'm celebrating with the inside scoopers. Thank you, Noor, for the 500 stars. It's very nice. Aww. Everyone's sending me stars. Oh, Thank you. Michelle sent you stars. Thank you, Michelle. How Thank nice. you. What are you going to do with your stars? They go to Pause for Change. I like, oh, I like nice. to get my the stars go to nice. the nonprofit Pause for Change. Thank you. Very nice. Um, so, yes, Aww. yes, there's something magical now happening here in Nova Scotia. And that would be uh, another. Re- <laughs> Check it out, inside scoopers. A two-headed bird, just recently after the golf. Now this kind of takes away from the golf sighting, but yeah. there is now a two-headed bird in Nova Scotia. I, I feel like Bill Gill is trying to one up the orange-legged gull woman. Listen, we're having the- a bird off. Bill Gill. Shout out to his parents that did that. That's very catchy. <laughs> Gil Bell and his wife, Arlene Gill, say that they have seen a two-headed bird visit their Cape Breton backyard at least twice. Twice in January. So at first glance, Bill Gill thought there were two different birds roaming around in his backyard. But on a closer inspection, the Cape Breton man noticed that there was only one plump little body with two heads, two beaks, and two wings, Dr. Karen Becker. This is a true story. Gil and both his wife, Erlene, saw the feathery forager, which stopped by his home in the community up in Cape Breton, okay? And this happened now twice. And he noticed, he said he noticed because the heads, the two heads, they were both eating. Independently? Independently. I think this is so magical. So there's the photo inside Scoopers on the right-hand side, that little red circle. Like, this is legit from... CBC that, News. That was Bill, I think that's that was that's Bill's, Bill's photo. Now, Bill made a mistake. And I just want to talk about this for you, Inside Scoopers, so you guys don't make this mistake. You guys might be saying every week, hey, what the heck does this have to do with, with education? Very big when it comes to photography. You see, where Bill failed here was that Bill went running outside to take a photo the second time the bird appeared, him and Erlene, with an iPad. So bad. You can never, if you, if if an alien, a two-headed bird, it doesn't matter, a rare seagull. What, what, listen, what's that thing with half horse, half man? A minotaur. If a minotaur appears in your backyard, comes out of the woods, <laughs> do not, do not, do not go running outside with your iPad to take a photo of it because what's going to happen is exactly what happened to Bill. Take a look at that photo yeah. with the red circle. Yeah. Bill, I don't know. Bill, I'm not, I'm not casting doubt. Yeah. I just think it's medically hard to sustain life what? as a prey species with two heads and being arboreal flying and being a winged creature. I just think that that would put you at high risk of predation. How does that go? He who laughs last, laughs best. So Bill, get a better camera. We'll prove Dr. Yeah. Karen Becker Please. wrong. I believe you, Bill. I do believe that Bill has a two-headed bird in his apple tree. I want to believe anyways. I want to believe that he has. I want to, let, let's keep the faith. I want to okay. believe it as well. Okay. So This is very, very fascinating study that came out this week. And it's talking about antibiotic resistance. These two studies that came out, check it out, antibiotic resistant gene sharing networks and the effect of dietary nutritional content on the canine and feline gut 
resistome. So for those of you wondering what the heck the gut resistome is, the gut microbiota serves as an important reservoir of antibiotic resistant genes, genes. ARGs, referred to as the gut resistome. Now, this goes back to Dr. Richard Pitcairn's article on all of these meats today, and we've talked about this before. When you are out buying meats for your dog and meats for your cat, meats for yourself, meat for your family, whatever the case may be, it is so critical that we ask more questions today because of these type of problems that we're seeing right now in these headlines. The next one says antimicrobial resistance increases over an eight-year period in enterobacteriaceae. Did I say yep. that right? Enterobacteriaceae. Which ACA. Is en yeah. Enterobacter bacteria, which is the number one bacteria that causes UTIs and for many humans. And it tends to be resistant to antibiotics. And what's frustrating and a little spooky, both for humans and for animals, is that there are people and animals that have not really had antibiotics, and yet they have antibiotic resistant bacteria. And that has been, for my clients, that has been shocking. They're like, my dog or cat's never been on antibiotics. How on earth can they have an antibiotic resistant infection going on? Some of you probably are aware that the vast majority of antibiotics produced, like 80% of antibiotics produced in the U.S., go to factory farmed animals' feeds as a growth additive, and that's being passed up the food chain. And that's how people and animals can end up with resistant infections from eating factory farmed meats. You don't anticipate that you're getting constant residual antibiotics in the meats that you're eating, but you are. And it's becoming a major issue. Well, it's super scary because if you think about it, over the eight-year period, it went from like 5% of dogs being resistant to the enterobacter. And then over an eight-year period, it went from 5% to 35%. Holy moly. You know, again, it's critical if you have the opportunity, if you have the resources that when you are, if you're buying local, if you're going visiting your local farmer's market, wherever you're getting your meat sourcing, if you're buying pet food with the meat in it, to ask the manufacturer, hey man, are you sourcing antibiotic-free meats, right? All these antibiotics going into the livestock all these families, all these homes across the United States, across all the globe are consuming the meat. And then now these humans, and especially dogs and cats who consume so much meat, are becoming so antibiotic resistant. And then your pet gets in trouble. And you are in a situation where you need antibiotics and those antibiotics don't work. Yeah. Because of the type of meat selection or the pet food that you were selecting to feed your pet. So I think that's super scary, like I said, and, and seeing those those type of headlines, man, especially these two types of studies that have come out over the last week. Holy gosh. For dogs and cats, in my opinion, we don't reduce their meat consumption because that's our evolutionary food source. So you do end up finding ways how to you, you end up joining co-ops and you end up buying, you end up meeting your local farmer and partnering with them and buying a quarter of a cow and you do animals, you know, and you share ethically sourced slaughtered meats uh, in bulk. And you get to know your farmers, you get to know your local food chain and food sources to be able to source healthfully grown animals in an economical way that you can afford. I think the key is meeting your farmers. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Now, here's something really important that you taught me about that I think every one of you inside scoopers should always have super critical in your back pocket. If you are a pet parent and you are not doing this, man, you are not doing your pet any justice and you're also hacking into your bank account unnecessarily. So remember when you taught me about culture testing? Yeah. When it came to your pets? Let's say that you go to your vet and then you need antibiotics for something, right? 
because of what you're seeing, these big jump and all of these sort of antibiotic resistant genes and our pets being so resistant to antibiotics, if you don't ask for a culture test, you can go home with the wrong antibiotic that you and your vet had no idea didn't work on your pet because either they're somewhat resistant to it yeah. or they're fully resistant to it. You give your pet those antibiotics over, let's say, a two-week period. All of a sudden, the bacteria comes down, but it doesn't come fully down. You just suppress it because they're resistant to that type of antibiotic. A month, two months, three, four, five months later, that bacteria starts to resurface again. You go back to the vet for the same problem because it wasn't taken care of the first time because your pet was resistant to that type of antibiotic and you had no idea as a pet parent. So you keep dishing out multiple vet bills for the same bacterial issue. So you always taught me to culture, especially with headlines like this. So as veterinarian, none of us are perfectly psychic in the sense that we're like, oh, we go into the pharmacy. There's literally, literally two dozen or more types of antibiotics. We can get some idea if it's gram negative or gram positive. We can stain it and look under the microscope. We can tell if it's rod or coxae. We can tell if it's gram positive, gram negative, but we really don't know of the hundreds, literally of hundreds of different types of bacteria that can cause a UTI. We can get some general idea, but the only way we're going to know in our heart what bacteria is growing in your dog or cat's bladder is to do a culture. I'm a big believer in doing a culture so that you practice best medicine, which means you pick the correct antibiotics, the least toxic antibiotic at the most effective therapeutic dose for the shortest duration of time you can specifically target and treat when you have the right information to know what you're treating. It just makes logical sense, comma, but cultures cost money. In between veterinarians using, I'm going to say an educated guess, but the truth is we're still guessing. Between veterinarians guessing and people not giving the pills on time, people hiding it in food and their dog not eating it, they're trying to pill their cat, their cats go behind the plant and throw it up. Then animals start to get better on between day three and four. Those clinical symptoms go away. They're not peeing around your house. And people say, okay, day five, which is only halfway through the treatment, everything looks good. I'm going to stop. All of those variables come together to create antibiotic resistance. And then they go back to the veterinarian, like you said, and they end up not being able to treat a recurrent infection. So it's this multitude of variables playing coming together that creates antibiotic resistance. If you have a pet that has a recurrent infection, what I will tell my clients is guess once and then do a culture. Shannon says, what's a culture? A culture, Shannon, is where we can collect that bacteria, streak it out on an agar plate, grow it in an incubator, and determine exactly what type of bacteria or plethora of bacteria is growing. Then we take a disc with all of like 24 common antibiotics. And then we have a secondary disc with 24 different antibiotics. They soak these little teeny tiny pieces of paper and antibiotic. And we put that on the plate and then we can tell which antibiotic soaked disc kills the most bacteria. And that's how we determine the mean inhibitory concentration, MIC, of which antibiotic is going to work well and at what concentration and which antibiotic is completely failure. Like if you give this antibiotic, it's not going to do anything for your pet. It's really smart medicine, but the culture is expensive. So, But it's so critical. I mean, as a pet parent, when you have that on hand and you have a specific situation on your hands and you really need to know if that antibiotic is going to work or not. Yeah. And <clears throat> not yeah. unnecessarily having to put your dog or your cat on too long of those antibiotics. I've seen people have to go home with like, like a month, a They'll month say, worth of antibiotics. Month. Can you imagine yeah. the dysbiosis that would be created, the leaky gut that is created when you have to do a month's yeah. worth of antibiotics? That's why if, if you have the budgeting for it as a pet parent, you've got that in your back pocket and you're ever in a situation where you need a round of antibiotics, 
here's the type of antibiotics that work, and here's how long I got to be on those type of antibiotics. I think everybody should be on those. Yeah. If you add up how many rounds of antibiotics, how much, how much lost time, and then how much on discomfort your animal's in, along with the fact that the antibiotics themselves are expensive, if you add all it up you know, from your second, third, and fourth visit back that was ineffective, you probably paid for your culture twice over if you just would have done it initially. Yeah. So. I think it's like one of the most important tools you can have as a pet parent if you got to go through antibiotics. I just, I can only imagine how many people are taking home antibiotics and have no idea that their pets are resistant to that type of antibiotic that yeah. they went home with. And so from that, Ooh. oh, I was just, I was almost hit into the next topic. No, I want you to hit the next topic. Yeah. But the next topic plays into where does your dog or cat get their nutrients from? Yeah, this one, this, this, you want to talk about something that rubs me the wrong way. It's this freaking headline, man. Every time I just hate this headline so much, but we're going to talk about it because this just came out five days ago. Now, you remember we were talking the other day about the scariest thing that you can find in your pet food. This, well, this is typically what scares me about pet food. And I, and I buy, I, you know, and back in the day, I was buying the most expensive pet food in the world. Last night, actually, I was having a discussion with this new awesome pet parent. And she came to talk to me and she was, she was saying to me that, you know, her father was telling her that spending more money on food meant the food had to be better. So they were buying like the vet line of food. They were buying, you know, whatever company will go just as an example with Hill Science Dietary, that spending $100 on a bag meant it had to be the best thing in the entire world. Gosh, it just makes my, makes my, I, makes my hair stand up. For those, the, Gosh, for those that have no idea what this slide or what these pictures even mean, uh, 2008, 2019, many dogs lost their lives to vitamin D toxicity. And this came out of one of the biggest companies in the world. And as of five days ago, Hills Pet Nutrition has agreed to pay $12.5 million to settle a consolidated class action lawsuit brought by pet owners of animals affected by uh, the canned dog food recall. Now, this, this lawsuit is interesting because this can branch out into many different things, right? The, what, what spurred this lawsuit on more than the animals that lost their lives, and this is what scares me about like processed food, right? Because in 2007, my cat was obliterated to melamine, which was also yeah. found in science diet. I mean, Hill's science diet is not having a great track record. It seems like every 10 years, something is happening with that company. That's something that that's scary. 2007, if anyone was ever part of that recall, it was just devastating. Uh, but there was melamine plastic in the food. And I was, again, I was buying like the, I, I can't remember back then what type of brand it was from the, the vet clinic, but it was definitely Hill's science diet, whether it was adult formula or whatever the case it was. And yeah, here we are, not a decade later, and the vitamin D that they were using was coming in at toxic amounts in 2018-19, and many pets lost their lives yeah. to it. So Hill's has decided to pay out. To pay out, probably and, 80 and, bucks a dog, yeah. or, you know, it just makes my heart hurt. Yeah, it's it, but it, you know it, it, again it it falls back to the issues of when you're feeding these type of foods. I'm always always preaching the more fresh food the better because it's when you're feeding these formulations, these formulated diets with synthetics that at any moment it could be a ticking time bomb, right? And it's not trying to scare people. It's just the reality that when if it does hit you, if you lose a pet, like all those pets that lost their lives to the aflatoxins in the corn, right? You buy a bag of food, you're putting it into a bowl. Sometimes you never have a problem. You will go 20 years, decades of different dogs and 
by the grace of God, you just never have a problem. And then there's those that like us mm-hmm. that, man, it's multiple repetitive problems, back-to-back animals with manufacturing mistakes. Well, and I guess I would even argue, being that the vast majority of animals are eating ultra-processed foods, Dr. Richard Patton said, you know, nutrition is never a crisis, except that nutrition can be a crisis when there's toxic levels of vitamin D. That's instantaneous sick dogs. But where where nutrition can become a crisis is in the exam room midlife, where I think the vast majority of veterinarians are seeing chronically ill and and debilitated animals specifically because of nutrition. But we're not linking that back to eating ultra processed diets that's loaded with synthetics. And that's my issue with vegan dog and cat food is there's so many critical amino acids vitamins and minerals missing from the plants that they're using, that they have to add in so many synthetics that your vegan dog food or vegan cat food, ultra processed, the ones that you're buying in the store, are basically a wad of synthetic nutrients with a bunch of carbs and starch all blended together. And the risk for not just glyphosate toxicosis, but the risk for this type of reaction in vegan foods, I think is much higher because the levels of synthetics are so high. Just another heads up, one of those things that you got to watch out for if it's not aflatoxins, vitamin D toxicity in pet food is a scary thing. But how about onto some awesome research? Onto poo. This is a human study about human melanoma. And what they found, melanoma is a tough bugger of a cancer in humans to address. And what this research shows is that for human melanoma patients that were refractory and non-responding to chemotherapy, they got non-responders to become responders by doing a fecal transplant, which is pretty cool. So there again, this goes back to poo, one of my favorite topics, in that if you have an animal that has had antibiotic therapy or that is unwell or has leaky gut or dysbiosis or IBD, poo therapy, microbiome fecal transplants or microbiome restorative therapy, all of the fancy words that we use because no one wants to say poo eating, but this is not just any poo eating. This is specific. This is targeted poo eating. Incredibly beneficial. I think we're just touching on the tip of the iceberg of all the benefits of what microbiome microbiome restorative therapy can do. In this situation, it made cancer therapy ineffective to effective after a transplant. That's pretty amazing. You've read some really good articles about humans that were not dying, but they decided to do their own fecal transplants from the tribes in Africa of long-lived people. David David Suzuki, Suzuki, our greatest scientist in Canada. Dramatic improvement with his well-being. Our greatest Canadian scientist, David Suzuki, he's watched his show growing up as a kid all the time. We've talked about this before where they went to Africa with the longest-lived people. They had double the gut diversity. They were putting their poop in turkey basters and squirting it down the throat, then analyzing their GI system. And they now carried those that bacteria, those subset of bacteria, that community of bacteria that's responsible for long longevity. Life. The problem was though, when they got back home to Canada and eating this, oh, they went back on their same traditional diet. diet. They lost the bacteria within two weeks. Two weeks, according to David, when we went and interviewed uh-huh. uh, uh, Dr. Tim Spector, one of the most well-revered microbiologists in the United Kingdom, when I flew down to interview him for the Dog Cancer Series, he said to me, two weeks of a diet, you can sh- in two weeks, you'll shift, shift your entire gut biome. So if you are a person who's maybe, let's say, not feeling the best, or you're having depressive thoughts, anxiety, that gut-brain access, within two weeks on the right diet, you can shift 
everything to maybe yeah. feeling better, to yeah. not having depressive thoughts, to being happier, right? Yeah. Or dogs that have aggression. It's unbelievable what, what people are doing what, with FMTs. It is. And even uh, I have started experimenting with the emotional aspects now because I passed the whole, is it safe? Or I passed if what if I mess it up? Animals that are, are perpetually like aggression or anxiety, giving aggressive or very high strung, stressed out animals, microbiomes from calm, grounded, balanced dogs works. Yeah. It's a shift. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, Purina is famous for that with common care feeding back to, you know, where they turned around that you got it from the human studies and they put it in small little sachets and packets. The problem is you're committed to it and it's only one strain of bacteria, but they saw a 90% efficacy rate feeding bifidobacterium longum to stressed out dogs and these animals became better. So it's like, if I ever got, I don't have a dog, but if God forbid I ever had a stressed out, anxious or bad behaved dog, one of the many things besides getting a really good trainer in my life, the other thing that I would be doing is as I would be really focusing on the gut, gut, analyzing the gut. I want to know if firmicutes are up because in those studies, firmicutes were always up and fusobacteria was always down. And then dogs that were less aggressive had more fusobacteria and yeah. the firmicutes were down, right? So that's a lot of information if you under if you you know if you start doing some research into the gut biome. I do think that the cognitive aspects of fecal microbiome transplants have have also been underestimated and that as we start learning, we won't reserve this therapy just for the dying, that we can use it to actually restore health and well-being. We don't have to wait till animals are dying. See Christine's comment? Pardon me? Christine's comment. Been having issues with my pup for months after an infection, antibiotics, then a broken arm, wasn't eating, lost weight, been yeah. syringe been syringe feeding. Gave him some poo last week and yesterday for the first day in months, no oh, syringing. So good. His own, right? so good. How magic of those. Thank yeah. you, Sherry, for the I will stars. say, um, Steve Brown, who made the Animal Diet Formulator, the software, he told me that the goal with Animal Diet Formulator is to be able to input a dog's microbiome analysis and then formulate foods based on the fiber. So Steve is now inputting all the fermentable, partially fermentable fibers, resistant starches. He's putting all the fiber information coming from the human literature into the Animal Diet Formulator. The goal with that is to be able to take your dog or cat's microbiome analysis, what's missing, what's up and what's down, what needs to be corrected, and then match it to functional foods and fibers. How cool is that? That's the beginning of functional nutrition entering veterinary medicine is matching your dog or cat's diet to the microbiome and helping to restore natural innate homeostasis in the gut. Pretty cool. All right. Now on to the preview study that you published yesterday when you put out that clip on alpha lipoic acid and check out this new study i just i don't know i got so much paper here i don't know where the heck that is Hmm. but the study was designed to determine the effect of alpha lipoic acid on uh, the glutathione status in healthy adult dogs so ALA, I would always confuse it with alpha-linolenic acid, right? And so then when I saw this study, ALA, were kind of in the abbreviations, it made me stop for a second, and then I turned around, and then alpha-lipoic acid, and I was like, wait a minute, alpha, I had to Google it, right? Because it's, nobody ever talks about alpha-lipoic acid in my world. Well, let me tell you how I, first of all, I... I will say that alpha-lipoic acid is one of my oldie but a goodie supplements, old, old, old supplements that I started using in 1997. I love it. That being said, what is alpha-lipoic acid? 
This particular article published in Animals that I'm going to try and read with no reading glasses. I, I just saw that. <laughs> Here I go. I may or may not get it right. It says <laughs> alpha-lipoic acid in its uh, reduced form. So it's R-lipoic, reduced uh, R-lipoic acid. have been shown to possess physiologic act- activity as an antioxidant and properties contributing to cardiovascular and cognitive health, anti-aging, detoxification, anti-inflammation, anti-cancer, and neuroprotection for dogs and humans. It's pretty profound. They're using it at at hospitals for human disease states such as diabetes, dementia, and multiple sclerosis. sclerosis. Several clinical trials in individuals with type 2 diabetes shows that it improves glucose utilization, improves insulin sensitivity, and lowers fasting blood glucose and insulin concentration. So it's used across the board from cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, and metabolic diseases. In humans and dogs, it really is unbelievable. I got so freaked out about kitties being toxic from alpha-lipoic acid that I still don't use any supplements, any supplements that have ALA in it for cats, not even if it's one milligram because I just am so freaked out about it. But the good news is it comes in food form. Absolutely. So you don't have to freak out so badly about it. The universal antioxidant. So, of course, they concluded at the end of the study that alpha-lipoic acid as part of a complete and balanced food was associated with the increase of glutathione activity in healthy dogs. And as you mentioned, this is like the anti-aging molecule. Yes, it is. So glutathione, for those of you that don't know, glutathione is also um, kind of all the rage. Both glutathione and alpha-lipoic acid, the body can make some of it. But I think what we're learning about, we're starting as technology progresses, we can actually measure glutathione levels in mammals and we can measure alpha-lipoic acid in dogs is what the study was done. Depending on your genetic variants, depending on your DNA, your body can either produce and recycle glutathione well, you may produce it but not recycle it well, you may not produce it and you may not recycle it. Those are three different genetic variables. And what we're learning is that genetics really matter when it comes to how much glutathione you can make, produce, and recycle. Glutathione is is an internal antioxidant that is made from glutamate, Three amino acids, glutamate, glycine, and cysteine all come together to make this amazing molecule called called glutathione, and it feeds into your ability to make energy. Alpha-lipoic acid plays into that cycle. So the tests showed that they gave dogs an alpha-lipoic acid supplement, and they gave very high amounts. I typically give kind of human doses for dogs, let's say, in this, in the study, they gave five milligrams, which is not a whole lot. That's a love five milligrams per kilogram is a lovely dose. That's about 250 milligrams for a 50 pound dog. That's a nice dose. Toxicity levels were like 400 milligrams per kilogram. And that's a massive swing from five milligrams to 400. That's a big swing. But even at the higher levels, dogs were safe, cats, not so much. So you can give food based alpha-lipoic acid at, um, and have beautiful side effect-free options. I always thought that organ meats were the richest source of alpha-lipoic acid, but you made a discovery. Yeah. So when we interviewed uh, Dave Asprey a few years back and I, I jacked one of Dave's quotes down there on the bottom, he's a massive fan, biohacker Dave Asprey of ALA. And, you know, so Right there in his quote, it says ALA has neuroprotective and cancer-fighting effects as it's an anti-inflammatory and wards off premature aging. So like anybody that, you know, wants to delay aging for themselves and now for their pets are pushing really hard uh, for ALA. And getting it in foods, as you said, is in my opinion, always a safer way of doing it unless you're in a situation where you need to supplement, right? So I have no issues that way. 
the number one food in the world to get uh, ALA and you should be incorporating it into your pet's food? Spinach. I did not know spinach that. Spinach is the number one source, 3.15 MCGs per gram in dry weight. And so I know a lot of people that are like petrified of spinach. They don't want to go near spinach. I remember Gene Dodds in the olden days would tell you that if you fed spinach, you'd be really prone, uh, prone to stones. And so it warded a lot of people off yeah. of spinach. And the reason that Dr. Dodds said that is that spinach contains a lot of oxalates. Spinach is a high oxalate food. In fact, Swiss chard, rhubarb, and spinach are the highest oxalate foods in the world. Now, rhubarb is toxic, so no one feeds it to pets. But Swiss chard and spinach are very high in oxalates and people do feed them. Now, if you don't have an oxalate issue, which means if you're, there again, it's genetics. If you can excrete oxalates and you can metabolize them, no problem. Spinach is your superfood. There are some breeds that are predisposed to forming oxalates, like Shih Tzus. They tend to form, they tend to have a hard time with uh, with oxalates. So if you have a dog or cat that it has a hard time, you don't have to fear spinach to the point that you never feed it. But would I feed spinach on a daily basis and as the sole source of vegetable to an animal that was struggling with calcium oxalate stones or crystals, I wouldn't feed it as the sole veggie. Can you use a little bit of spinach as a treat or if spinach is included in a, a food, can you feed it? Yes, of course. Now, if you boil it too, right? You, you, you're you in a- Boiling yeah. all high oxalate foods dramatically reduces right. oxalate concentration. Kelly says beets too, right? Yes, Kelly, spot on. Beets as well are a rich source high, of high, ALA. And, and also high in oxalates. <laughs> Yeah. So in order, number one would be spinach if it's in your rotation. Number two, bovine kidney, bovine cow heart, which is there. Broccoli comes in at number four. Tomatoes, green peas, Brussels sprouts, then cow spleen and brain. And then number 10 on the list is rice bran. So if you've got some of these foods in your rotation, according to science, you are bringing in the universal antioxidant and potentially slowing down the uh, aging process. So when it comes to kitties, let me just say that I think, I believe that we tend to underfeed glands to dogs and cats. I'm a big believer in feeding glands. I think that they evolved consuming glands and I just don't think we feed enough of them, including organ meat. So if you can give kitties a little bit of kidney now and then, that's a lovely natural source of alpha-lipoic acid, totally safe um, and side effect free. So I'm a big fan of organ meats for alpha-lipoic acid. Let's go one more study. All right. One more study. Let's do it. One more study. One more study. And I do, I want to, I really want to give a shout out here. This is the fabulous Dr. Iniko that we've interviewed. So right down here on the bottom, this is an unseen interview that uh, we're putting together for the forever dog, of course. And here we were talking about Methuselah dogs. So the uh, wonderful article that came out on them on why dogs can teach humans about healthier aging. This is always so fascinating. If, if you're a scientist, the hardest thing in the world for you is to try to get budgeting, to try to get yeah, funding, right? True. If they love dogs and they want to study dogs and they know deep in their heart that let's say fresh food is better for the overall body, but they know that no one, no one will cheer for the little guy. Like no one will ever fund the poor old carrot, right? Because you can't patent it and you can't make money off of it. These scientists will figure out ways. And so what they've done here is it says here on the in the top part, our pet dogs could help extend human lives beyond their documented effects on people's well-being. So now they can approach the government and say, we want to study on dogs. 
in a humane way so people's own dogs pet parents dogs. it's called translational medicine translational medicine or, or one health medicine yeah. you for study the benefit one of species humans. to help humans yes for the benefit of the humans we're doing this for, but then they wink right we're doing this for the benefits of humans and we'll be and humans will be able to live longer from this research and so they've they're doing so many studies right now. They have 20,000 dogs enrolled, which is phenomenal. We've got one of the top geneticists down there on the bottom. We've got one of the top scientists on dog lover extraordinaire, Dr. Kubini. And they were, as you said, sorting out the longest lived dogs in the world in their genes and what we could potentially bottle and give back to breeders so we could all have 20-year-old dogs. Like that just gives me goosebumps. It like does. when I see this type of science yeah. and you tell me I can have my dogs for three times longer than dogs are living in North America today, it's like sign me up. Take my money. Take yep. all my money. Here's my podcast, Mike. Take everything. Um, just tell me that we could get our dogs to live longer. And this is what these guys are doing. Yeah. One study backed up the analysis of activity pattern in sleeping dogs. Now we've talked about sleeping dogs and brains before, and we've talked about member sleep spindles. Rodney's really into sleep spindles. I'm really into sleep, sleep spindles, man. When you, when you're not getting proper sleep or your dog is not getting proper sleep, they can show you that not only will this make for like a crankier dog, it disrupts memory but it also affects the dog's overall lifespan. So your trainers that are out there watching it, thank you for the 100 stars, Oh, so nice. It's birthday you, stars. Thank you for the 50 I, stars, I, sh I should send you some birthday stars too. Send you birthday stars. So as a trainer, one of those big questions would be, how are these animals sleeping, right? Like how, what is the environment? How are they sleeping? Are they sleeping under blue lights? Is somebody in the house doing shift work? How many times is the dog waking up? Those interruptions, those sleep spindles are catastrophic mentally and physically to dogs, right? Here's what they found though as dogs age. So as a biomarker of cognitive aging across species, that this study found that better canine performers in, mem in memory tests tend to have lower levels of a certain type of actinobacteria in the gut, mimicking some observations in people with Alzheimer's. Holy funding. That's how you get funding when you're a smart scientist. You link that to dog to Alzheimer patients, right? So this actinobacteria, Dr. Becker, lower levels of it, dogs are performing better in yeah. tests, right? So these this preliminary research shows, according to Dr. Kubini, that this could shed some light on the best type of diets for dogs as they age. Right. And that parallels Dr. Aniko was aware that humans with Alzheimer's have high actinobacter. I mean, there's 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 not this direct correlation, but we're starting to make these associations. This is brand new research. Early science, early correlations, early knitting together, what does this mean? Which then makes me think with that information as a pet parent, could you call up whatever company is testing the gut biome of dogs and say to them, would you please test my dog's actinobacteria levels and see if they're escalated? Because that could be an early sign that you have cognitive decline developing in your dog and you've got to step in and you've got to do something. Yeah. And fusobacteria also drops, interestingly enough, right? Like fuso is so responsible for longevity and health and it starts to decline in dogs, which is another indication of why you should be increasing the fusobacteria in my heart, my belief system at this moment with what science is showing, is you've got a dog that's aging, increase the fusobacteria. One of the best places Steve Brown was saying, remember back in the old days when they're out in soil, when they're out running around, yeah. when they're moving, these are all great ways to increase fusobacteria. Also protein in its raw form is a great way to increase fusobacteria in dogs. But if there's a whole bunch of body that shows that ictinobacteria in high levels is causing this, then why not get a test and see 
maybe you're potentially having an early onset of cognitive decline in your dog and, and, or cat. And like, what does a round of antibiotics do to actinobacteria? What if, what if multiple rounds of antibiotics wipe out the good guys that are the placeholders that are preventing actina from going crazy? And what if your actinobacter flourishes? What if you regrow yeah. after a round of antibiotics, only yeah. actinobacter? That like totally could predispose you for having stick down the road. That's not such a great idea. No. These are the things that keep us up at night. Michelle, thank you for the stars. Sue, thank you. Thank it's you. It's so much love. Sharon. What are you going to do on your birthday afternoon? So, I got to wrap this up for Abe, but you made me something delicious, which was made. I told you the only way that you were allowed to stay uh, here while writing and finishing up the Forever Dog book was you had to just give me some sort of present for my birthday. I did. And he, yesterday. He, he did ask about when I was going to present him with a present, which I don't, don't, I don't think it. it's not very pretty. Well, you, yeah. He asked me what I was going to give him for his birthday. And I said, I don't, I don't really like plan for those things. And I'm sorry, I didn't really get you anything. But he did say he wanted a banana cream pie. So the legendary Dr. Karen Becker is not only the smartest veterinarian. It doesn't look very delicious, but it really is. One of the smartest really veterinarians in the entire world. You can't tell from the camera. But she also makes a delicious Banana cream pie. Now, here's my favorite part. <clears throat> Michelle says my 100 stars are for Karen. Okay. That is delightful. Thank you, Michelle. So I didn't eat this yet. I, I swear to God, I had like maybe, I don't know, a couple bites. He, he's right. Now, I made him a pie. Something broke into my house yesterday at night. About midnight. Something broke into my house. Vermin. Vermin got into my house and ate my birthday cake before my birthday. Yep. I'm just just going to say that. I was equally as offended. I don't know who would eat half a cake. Someone else's birthday cake at midnight. I don't know who would do that. Yeah. It was really. But here's the good news. I always look at that glass half full. So I have half a banana cream pie to eat on my birthday. That is what I'm going to do I just do would today. recommend that you keep the pie directly in your line of sight <laughs> because you never, sometimes pies evaporate. Sometimes the other half could go to the same unknown location that the first half went in. Okay, and on that note, Inside ha Scoopers. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed today's podcast with all the different science. If you watch football, happy Super Bowl Sunday. That's all I got. Do you want to say bye? Say bye, Karen. I want to say bye. Listen, thanks for all the love stars. You did a great job with the graphics. I want to say, I hope you guys all have a really fantastic week. We'll see you next week. Thank you for the stars, Tina. Bye, guys. Bye.